On episode 239, I'm interviewing Lenny Murphy, author of Green Book Research Industry Trends, or The Grit Report for short. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Leonard Murphy, author of the Green Book Research Industry Trends. That's the GRIT Report. He's partner in G2 Advisors, director at Verglyph, advisory board member on many different startups and companies, investor, and industry change agent. Started in 1962, the Green Book is a wholly owned subsidiary of the New York American Marketing Association and is a worldwide directory of marketing research companies and focus group facilities. Veriglyph is a private permission-based blockchain creating a data ecosystem around respondent data ownership, increasing transparency and security. Lenny, thank you so much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Let's start a little bit with the origin story. I should say let's start. That's not true. We've already started. But uh, let's, now let's move on to the origin story of Leonard Murphy. Tell me a little bit about your parents and uh, how that's informed your career. Uh, well, my dad was uh, military, so Air Force for 20 years. And then he went into government service, worked for the VA. So they were older. So my, my parents were Depression era. Oh, you know, wow. My dad was in, served in World War II uh, and in and Korea. So different kind of value system. You know, I was, was raised by the greatest generation parents. So that was interesting. Uh, yeah, I bet. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a teenager, I thought that was awful. Now I'm, you know, far more grateful for it. When I was, you know, 17 and had a mohawk and, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. thought that I was uh, Mr. Punk Rock, total rejection of those values. And, and of course, like all of us do, you know, by the time I was probably 20, realized, oh, well, actually, you know, they're, maybe they were smarter than I thought that they were. <laughs> um, so, and, and now they, they both passed away uh, quite a few years ago. And, you know, I certainly miss them. Mm. Um, I wonder what they would think of the world that we live in today, but I like to think that at least they'd be proud of the life that I've built that's far mm-hmm. more aligned to the life they tried to build as well than anything else. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a, you know, it's funny you have that depression era. I mean, if that's my grandparents' framework, right? My grandmother would literally save saran wrap in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, my dad never threw anything away. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, it's just like, it's like such a different point of reference than us. And it's, gosh, I mean, I like that. I've got, I'm a, a dad of teenage boys and I, I like to think that on the outside of it, they're going to look back and go, gosh, my dad wasn't such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, so I have, uh, I have two 23 year old daughters and a 21 year old daughter. And then we have 10 year old and eight year old and a six year old. Right. right. So yeah. I mean, uh, Full house, man. It, it, but the cool thing is that although the 23-year-olds were beginning to get to that point where maybe I'm not such an asshole as well, <laughs> that I was just a few years ago. Now, maybe that has something to do with, you know, they still depend on me to pay for their for school. That's and, right. Uh, <laughs> all those that's, kind of things. That's so, right. But, 
you know, we, I, I haven't been called an asshole by my older kids in a few years. <laughs> I take that as I'm doing something right. Because there was a time, there was a time where, where I was. So. so kind of reflecting on your parents, then we'll move on. Like, what was one of the big lessons or core values that they imparted, that generation imparted to you that you have sought to impart to your family? Help. Hmm. Help people. They were always trying to help other folks. You know, my dad would give the shirt off his back. Mm -hmm. um, now, it, you know, he would make sure that you knew he was giving you the shirt off his back and you <laughs> owed him for that. But, but he still would go out of his way to try and help people. We always had, you know, we, we, they were foster parents, so we always had foster kids in the house. And, uh, and that was good and bad. But it was still a powerful lesson that you, you just you try and help people. Mm. Um, and that's certainly something that we've tried to instill in, uh, in our kids as well. Yeah. Oh, I love that. My, uh, and it's funny how that's like played out like in our kind of preface of the episode piece into your career and core values and character. I remember my grandfather, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. My, I haven't thought about this in many years. My grandfather, uh, during World War II, he had uh, some physical disabilities because he'd been shot and whatever. And so he couldn't go to war. And they started the, um, in our area, a small group of small farmers, they, they're, was a large contingent of Japanese-owned farms. Okay. So when they started, when they did the Japanese internment camps, then my grandfather helped lead a group of people that farmers that wound up taking care of the farms of the Japanese people. Wow! Um, while they were away, so that when you know they were later released, they were able to come back to working farms as opposed to you know desolation. That's very. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think you're right. Like that generation had, I, I, you know, we, we've replaced that like neighbor connection with a digital connection. I mean, thinking about like the digital nomad, et cetera, kind of framework. And it's going to be interesting to see. It's just different. I'm not judging it as right or wrong, but there's definitely strength, probably in both, but there's definitely strength in that, you know, a proximity based relationship. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. We've made choices to the, both my wife's family and my family, uh, she's an Atlanta native. I am not, but most of my family settled uh, here mm -hmm. in Atlanta. And, uh, yeah, we've just made the choice to be here. Um, right. And a lot of that is so we can be close to family and, and, uh, and help and be a part of their lives. And, uh, and we value the stability of our, of our kids growing up with lifelong friends and neighbors. And, you know, those are very purposeful decisions mm -hmm. that we want them to have those real connections um, as well. Now, me personally, I've, I'm probably far more digitally connected than anybody um, yeah. in my family. But I've tried to kind of maintain that same, at least, sense of neighborliness, mm -hmm. you know, of, of helpfulness. And whether it's – it hasn't been a substitute, but right. but it does help. I, I, if I don't have that connection to people of – of just being a part of their lives in some level, mm -hmm. I really, I don't feel good about myself. Right. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. It sucks. I, I don't like that feeling of isolation. So that's, I mean, it's so good. It, having that self-awareness is so important. So I want to talk about the grit report. A lot of people, all the people, <laughs> including myself, we see the grit report as this thing that is the herald of what's coming. And it's a very, it sits in a very powerful position right now inside of our industry you know, with over approximately 600 different tools that touch market research or consumer insights uh, in some way, you know, being the curator of that 
pile of spaghetti is it's it's really an important role both from a brand and an agency perspective but it didn't start there and i think that's part of the story that most of us don't hear i would love to hear about like that first you know those early days of the grit report and what that was like <laughs> so early the, the original grit report i worked for a company called dial tech yeah, i was a vp at, at dial tech and they did IVR, mm -hmm. so IVR market research. Yeah. Um, and this was right, is early 2000s, right? It was the beginning of the, the onset of online. And we wanted to understand the industry, right? Uh, from a supplier standpoint. So I thought, well, you know, let's do a survey of the industry. And we're like, <laughs> you know, the only way we're gonna get people to tell us this is if we give them the data back. Right. So. So the very first iterations of that were really a very self-serving uh, kind of competitive intelligence um, mm -hmm. uh, survey for Dialtech to see how the hell do you compete in the online world when you're utilizing IVR. And when I left Dialtech, I took that with me to Rockhopper and, uh, and we kind of continued that, but with a slightly more altruistic uh, objective. We, we, we thought, you know, this, this is something that could be valuable. And that's when I met uh, Lukash at Green Book. So great. he had seen the report uh, as primitive and, and uh, as it was, I said, you know, we'd like to help with this. Um, and that kind of established our, our relationship. So the first few years of it, this is the early 2000s, were kind of driven by that. Then when I had the opportunity to join Green Book, we decided to turn that into what it is you know, today and that evolution of, you know, really is, there's no, it is, purely altruistic at this point, you know, of, you know, of do a report for the industry by the industry and, and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and as a content piece, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's evolved since then. It continues to evolve. I mean, we're, we're thrilled that so many people find value in it. Uh, we're thrilled that people like the, the grit 50, right? The, the, the kind of the brand tracker of yeah, for sure. innovative. And we've got big plans on what we're, we're going to do in the future. So we continue to focus on how to utilize the data in new ways. We're, we're exploring a platform right now called Inguo that is a, a causal analysis platform versus a correlation analysis platform. And we've got enough data that we think we can start doing some more interesting things that can become really useful tools for, especially the supplier community. Um, huh, that's uh, interesting. Establish some benchmarks for folks to be able to say, if you do these things, this can drive you towards success, right? These are the the, the common elements of uh, successful businesses. So uh, we're experimenting with all that behind the scenes, but it's, uh, it, it's fun. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, and it's, walk, it's kind of walking the talk, right? Since it's about trying to identify what the future mm -hmm. is and experimenting, well, we keep experimenting. Sometimes we do, we get it right, sometimes we don't. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's things we could do better. So we try and own that and, and keep on. So it's fun. And it keeps me think busy. <laughs> when you think about the things that you've done like really, really well by you, I don't mean, I don't mean to like, I realize you're a humble person. So I, <laughs> this is going to be hard for you to answer. So, but like we think about with a grit report in general, you know, what has it done that's like, where is its sweet spot? Where is it thriving and kicking ass and doing its best? I really think recently, over the last few years, we focused a lot more on a deeper level analysis of trying to understand the real drivers of change in the industry, both the client and the supplier side. 
so rather than just being a kind of a dump of information regarding trends, and there's still certainly a lot of that in the report, you know, mm -hmm. but when you dive deeper, there's a whole lot more around, you know, these are the hallmarks of successful organizations on both the supplier and the client side. Right? These are the things they have in common. This is what that profile of organizational success looks like. And that's been very predictive of mm -hmm. changes that we've seen in the industry, the shift from full service to technology driven. So I think it's, uh, you know, understanding buzz topics and seeing those play out, right? I mean, some of the things that we were talking about years ago, you know, mobile, AI, automation, you know, those were, were early indicators in grit a few years ago. Now they are major trends defining characteristics of the industry. So it's been highly predictive of kind of looking at the, the road ahead and understanding this is what's coming and this is how it's going to impact business and then understanding these are how companies are adapting to those changes and being successful. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think we can do a whole lot better than we are, but I'm not aware of any other report in any industry, but particularly in, in ours, mm -hmm. that is that useful as a strategic planning tool. And that's not taking anything away from the other great reports, the SMR, right. GMR, it's a great report. I read it every year. You know, there's lots of great stuff in it. I think this is just really focused on the pragmatic aspects of the, the, the business of mm -hmm. the industry, whether you're on the client side or the supplier side. So when you think about like starting a business in this space on the technology side specifically, right? Fitting yep. inside of the grit sort of scope, what do you see as the companies that are standing out and winning in that space? Like what is the differentiator um, there versus uh, the other companies? Because there's a lot of entrants. I mean, I, I counted, I don't know, I, I counted over 75, I don't know exactly if that's the right number, but it was about 75 exhibitors in Austin at um, IAEX. So like there was, and it might have been more, but there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people there. So like what are the, what is the hallmark, what are you seeing as the hallmark of the companies that are winning in the market? Yeah, that's just interesting. I mean, certainly on the surface, what they all have in common is the cheaper, faster, better rubric. Yeah. It's the better part that is less easily definable. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably where the differentiation occurs. There's lots of companies that can do cheaper and faster. The better part is not just the data, mm -hmm. um, but it's also the service. And that is where a lot of the tech companies really struggle because they're tech companies. They don't want to develop service, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're all chasing that Silicon Valley valuation model and, you know, uh, everybody's taught, oh, you can't have, you know, if too much from a service component and the business can't be valued as a tech company. And right. while that's true, it's accurate, but there is not a single company that has been successful in this industry selling to the client side. I should be clear on that. That has not had to develop a significant service capability in some form or fashion. Right. Um, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, they just haven't. Had, I mean, even Qualtrics, right? We look at that Qualtrics valuation, you know, and uh, Qualtrics that they they've got a very large service organization. Um, now, I think they, you know, I'm not sure how that's accounted for in the in the books. <laughs> it's called goodwill. The uh, well on the on the anime side. That see, this is so. so I, I just had a conversation yesterday with Steve, CEO of um, Thoughtify. On this this exact topic, and that is, you know, the the role of the role of services 
in technology has to be in, in market research has to be coupled because customers need the support when they need the support and they don't want, they want the whole, that's part of the whole product, but it's not an excuse for bad UI. Right. So like the user experience side of things still needs to be, I still think you win there, but you, but you have to have best in class white glove experience right. for the customer. But, you know, it's interesting. So this is one of those, you know, as we try to walk the talk, you know, we saw this trend in the green book size. So we invested in building Savio because the, the thinking was, all right, the best way to help technology companies just be technology companies, but right. still deliver on the service was to create a marketplace component so they could tap into the service on demand. Which for I, me makes like perfect sense, by the way. Me too. I still think I'm right. Um, <laughs> but the industry would not agree with me. Now, not that I wasn't right, but from an adoption standpoint, it is still, it's been a real challenge. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. be upfront about that, right? Uh, I still think that the time for Savio hasn't quite arrived yet. It's coming. We're still continue to, you know, tweak the model, but that, gig economy component, and I think this doesn't just apply to, to our industry, has not reached full potential yet because there's still, I think the business sense is, you know, build by your partner. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to service, it's easier to build because you can manage the inputs more easily. So when your business is dependent upon a service component and you outsource that, then you'd lose the control. So therefore, quality can become a challenge and your differentiator can go away. So I think that's still companies are just defaulting to, I just have to build this and so we can manage it to make sure that the quality is there to deliver on the client's need, even though they don't want to. Right. So that's, uh, that was kind of the, the disconnect with Savio as well. I still think that logistically and, and pragmatically, it makes perfect sense. And some companies have uh, adapted it and others haven't, but managing the quality control process is a challenge if you don't own it internally. Yeah. And, and, you know, and part of the challenge there too is I think, you know, we'll pick on Methodify. I don't know very much about the business, so I'm completely blind here, but the, in the conversation, brief conversation in, that I had with them, you know, you've got a technology, but so that's kind of like the entrant into the, the transaction or the relationship, the customer relationship. Um, and then there's this augment opportunity of support. And so, you know, it's, it feels right now like it's a little bit different if they're utilizing a brand like Methodify, then, or I'm sorry, if they're using a, a, a platform like Methodify, then, you know, they want that support in context of that relationship. Right. Um, as opposed to more of the lucid marketplace sort of framework. But I think where the standout is, you know, is like focus group procurement, which is this massively segmented space, even with Schlesinger, you know, being probably the largest, is that, are they the largest network you think? Um, uh, I think close. So. I think now they are. Yeah. 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 Anyway, in the top two, three, anyway, yeah. you know, you still don't have global, global coverage. Right. So, you know, my, my, my point is that I think the marketplace framework works really well when there isn't a there isn't a whole product that exists for the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. The Methodify actually is a really interesting company from a kind of a trend standpoint. So you think they're a company that I would call a kind of full stack. So I, I kind of, the, the dichotomy that I'm seeing in the industry, we're talking about this in the latest group report is kind of full stack versus full process. And I'll explain mm -hmm. what the difference is that, but you know, cause they start with Delvinia, right? Delvinia is a full service company, full service research company. They saw the automation trend coming along yeah, and they wanted to tap into that, but they didn't want to outsource it through, let's say, Zappy. Right. 
So they wanted to control the value chain themselves. Right. Um, so they created Methodify as an internal resource that they could also productize and externally sell. So they had multiple entry points for the client, right? You just want the kind of DIY uh, automated solution, low cost, low barrier of entry. We, we've got that now. Right. So you need something that has a service component, but not full service. Well, that's great because they have a connection to Delvinia. So they can address that need internally from a service can standpoint, or you need full service, then they've got Delvinia, which is very similar to what uh, Periscope by McKinsey yep. did. Yep. Right. Yep. So, and they built their whole framework of uh, of low cost tools. That's what Cantar did right. when they kind of pulled out of Zappy and launched their marketplace. So we're seeing this evolution of companies that are trying to play on both sides, and and having you know the, the multiple tiers of points of entry for the business, and that's kind of the full stack. Right. Then the full process are now this other direction where we see companies like LRW, for instance, or Hospex, or even uh, System One. I said, you know, we're not necessarily going to go down that path much. They've done some things, but instead they want to own more of the marketing lifecycle. So they've been expanding kind of uh, horizontally into taking, you know, agencies, the, the business of agencies and activation and pulling that into the research business. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like what if, if WPP had really integrated Cantar, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. kind of across the board. But those that seem to be the two defining styles that are happening overall with companies kind of various points on the spectrum in that evolution between those two sides of the business. I didn't listen to the startup pitch competition this last year in Austin, but um, do you remember who the winner was? Yes. So I was yeah. in my defense, I was doing podcasts on I, site. I know you were, I, <laughs> so, oh, it wasn't like I was, <laughs> I was messing around. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, UX reality by cool tool. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really cool story. It is. I mean, they've, yeah. So we, uh, full disclosure, I'm an advisor. The, I didn't know that. Incidentally, all the shows mentioned, or sorry, all the uh, companies mentioned on this show are going to be completely surprised, hopefully delighted. So this is not like a paid placement. No, um, no, no, no. But bullshit I, like that, listeners. No. <laughs> but I try and be transparent about those things. But that, yeah, they're a company that, I mean, they've pivoted so many times, right, over the years. Cool tool. They, they're, they're they're from the Ukraine and, you know, super smart guys. And they started uh, early on. They had a they had almost a Savio type model. Then they had a Zappy type model. And before these companies, I mean, they really saw the opportunities here. And then they uh, they, they took kind of a the marketplace for non-conscious measurement and they built a whole you know, very sophisticated platform to do a variety of those things, but just couldn't catch. Oh, they, they didn't have the killer app. Right. right. So so then they, they built you know, UX reality is a very specific app to try and understand, you know, on a mobile device, you know, everybody, your point of experience, ingrained eye tracking and all that cool stuff. And, it, and so that just shows from, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, they just kept trying until they got it right. They entered the competition four times. Did they right? really? I yeah. did not know that. Four yeah. times. Four times. And, and they just, they kept learning. Right, and getting it and getting it better and better and being very, very iterative. And it's a powerful story of entrepreneurial success. I've got to right? get them on the show. I love, I love, and it's and it's interesting. The four times is really interesting because I had a lot of people, at least a dozen, after that come by where I was doing the podcasting, and they would talk about, "Wow, those guys are so smart. They've really figured it out." And it sounded like you know they fell off the back of a truck and they had this like really and, and were magically successful. And they had this like really smart you know, path and this is real clear and we're just going to nail it. 
No. So, oh, it's years. good to hear that. Yeah, years of trial and error and pivoting. Mm-hmm. So the uh, uh, and I think that's that's an incredibly useful uh, lesson for any entrepreneur. You know, I I don't know. Yeah, you know, I've written so many business plans in my life that I realize <laughs> the worthlessness of the exercise. I, I recognize the value of the exercise, but when you know, I, I think it's a, a quote. Uh, I don't know, remember it exactly, but something that was military of you know, every plan is brilliant until you enter the battlefield. Right. right? Totally. Um, Mike Tyson has a similar quote. Okay. Yeah. It, so, and that's that's certainly experience from that company and even my own experience. You mm-hmm. know, and Savio thought did all the research, you know, brilliant. Like, we got it. We know what we're going to do. And so you get into the market and realize, well, shit. Okay. Nope. <laughs> that. I, just got hit, I just got hit in the face. <laughs> oh, okay. So. <laughs> so we adapt, right? That's you right. Out, you tweak. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So industry is going through a lot of transition, has gone through a lot of transition. What is one of the biggest themes that you've seen over the last couple of years inside of the market research space? Well, there's that, that dichotomy we talked about before, kind of yep. the, the new settling of what, how do we define the, the kind of the business models of the industry? Certainly consolidation. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's uh, been, yeah, that's been crazy lately. Let's yeah. actually dig in on this point. Are you seeing, like, are, do you think we're at the top of the curve or do you feel like we're going to plateau and then, it's interesting to me having so much private equity and venture capital money, like market, re- you've seen the data, market research is a hot topic. We, you and I were, we were the nerds in the corner right. looking at the girls that we were, you know what I mean? Like there was no, <laughs> nobody dancing. Right. We were not dancing. Right. We were afraid Everybody to go. Everybody laughing at us like, what? Right. Yeah, exactly. There was no like Michael J. Fox cool factor with, with us, right? We were definitely with Nick Fly. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's a spotlight that's inside it on, on top of market research. And you're seeing these, in my opinion, remarkable valuations. I mean, yeah. forget about Qualtrics. Just put that on the side. Yeah. You know, you have Dynata, which I'm not sure that they released it, but it was released. Uh, I saw it on Reuters. You know, they're, yeah, three, over $3 billion valuation. Uh, I haven't, you know, obviously seen the book or any, any private data there. But, you know, the, the word on the street is it's about a $600 million business maybe more, maybe less, but my point more. Okay, great. So but the point being though, that, you know, it's a, it's a lot of pass through. You got incentive, you got recruitment. There's a big cost basis in that side of a business for it to get that type of a multiple. Right. Well, I mean, they became a cash machine. I mean, that, so. I think that, <laughs> okay. So they are ATM. That's true. Yeah. I mean, so, so that's the, the interesting thing is for the past. So I guess as a byproduct of grit, we were approached by, private equity investors all of the time. Sure, of course. Help, you know, consult or just, you know, run ideas past us. And it, it's pretty, it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. So, and we've even played uh, ourselves in working through some some different theses for, uh, for private equity and investment. So understand how that works. It's a mature industry. So it's primed for disruption. I don't think we're at the top of the cycle. I think we're seeing the largest players, obviously, mm-hmm. go through that process now. You know, I, the when we're waiting here, we have to Nielsen any day now, but I think the only company that's going to be left standing is Ipsos um, yeah. uh, as far as kind of independent. Yeah. The, uh, well, and they're public. In they're public. Yeah, yeah. In France. So we'll see. The big question is what happens when the companies are that large and they go into private equity and, and private equity is always looking for an exit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know where the exit is for a private equity company to come in to Dynata or in a Cantar. 
or GFK? Where do they go? I don't see clarity on that yet, uh, and I, which is probably why I don't work for a private equity company, right? They, <laughs> so they have a thesis uh, on that. But when you're going to pay, you know, what I think Cantar is six billion, I think mm-hmm. four billion, whatever the number is, you know, a big ass number. But who are they going to sell to? I don't see where that goes. And I have the same question about Dynata. I totally get they are a cash cow. They arbitraged the hell out of that business when they merged with SSI and, and bought Critical Mix. Those were all arbitrage plays. They increased their EBITDA significantly. You know, they're spinning out tons of cash and they look really attractive for private equity. But a $3 billion private equity investment, what happens then? So the, are they going to go public? Right? I mean, that's what Bain did with Macromill. So, you know, maybe that's the play. I personally think a strategic makes more sense, and particularly a strategic like a Qualtrics or a SurveyMonkey that has a lot of cash but doesn't have a lot of data, but know mm-hmm. they want to make a data play. That makes more sense to me. Maybe a Salesforce. I've thought about Salesforce many mm-hmm. times, even a Microsoft or Oracle. LinkedIn. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is going to get bought by somebody else anyway. Well, they're already owned by Microsoft. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But 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 I'm thinking about like you know they had they entered into the market research pit place uh, and then obviously retracted a couple of years later and, yeah. and everyone was terrified when they entered because you know yeah. I mean they are the there is no arguing they're the best panel. <laughs> I, I have heard there is a rumor for B two B just a rumor. Yep, that that SurveyMonkey was working with them. Yeah, um, I've heard that too. Not yeah. from you. Okay, good. But, but it, is, it is a rumor. I mean, I'm not- It is not, a rumor. This is not yeah, the conspiracy theory show. But, right, right, but. right. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense. They see the uh, value, right? So we'll see. But, the, but that, that consolidation of the upper levels, there will be you know, mid-market private equity companies that you know, they're already in play. We got LRW and you know, et cetera, et cetera. There will be more plays like that. Uh, as companies get to that kind of 50 to 100 million range. The problem is there's not that many companies in our space that are at that range. So, right. right. You know, You're absolutely right. And, and it's it's just, they'll be the next platform, right? There's really not that many companies in general that kind of fit that mid-market $100 million, you know, right. to $500 million type framework. It's just not a lot of businesses that are sitting there. And And to your point, I think like, you know, those are very attractive if you can build them because, and that's where Tulum is kind of interesting for me is they're sitting out, right. They're still sitting out, you know, Frederick's done a beautiful job of navigating two decades uh, of, or more than that of uh, tumultuous times. Well, actually two decades. And that business has just continued to maintain, in my opinion, a heck of a lot of relevancy and cutting edge. You know, they've got their whole, like they've pivoted their panel from analysts and respondents to influencers and I thought that move, even though it, I don't think marketing-wise, it needs to get touted more, but it's been just huge. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of probably all the panels as a uh, respondent, and I, they do a really nice job, I think, on the, on the management side of it. I think so, too. There's a few diamonds in the rough, for whatever it's <laughs> worth, I think. Uh, not diamonds in the rough, I think, the best-kept secrets. Taloon is one, um, mm-hmm. I agree. AYTM is another, and I am an advisor, but I'm an advisor because... <laughs> I love... They're, you know... Great company. Yeah, hot specs, another, and that's not disparaging anybody else. I mean, these are just companies that I, I know really well, and I think you know these have the potential. And there's more. I'm not going to mm-hmm. rattle off the whole list, but the, they know. can find them in the grit report. That's right, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the grit fifty. So yeah. that really has potential to be get to that next level. And you know, they what holds them back is 
uh, is capital. Yeah. Right? That's it. Totally. How do you throw money? I mean, most of them are organic. I mean, Tulum is not, but most of those other companies they haven't taken uh, money. They've been bootstrapped. They've grown nice, good-sized businesses, but they're not really attracted to VCs yet because they're not tech-based, right? Mm -hmm. Or fully tech-based, which is a service component, or they've decided just not to go down that route because they don't want to sell their souls, mm -hmm. um, which is <laughs> my experience with Rich Capital. Uh, and they're not big enough yet for private equity. So right. uh, that in-between space where they've, they've built really successful, they're more than lifestyle businesses, but they haven't quite reached the ability to become scalable yet. Again, Tulum is an exception. They're a big business, right? But there's still limits in where they can go. And that's, that's a disappointing aspect of the industry. There's some great companies, great operators, great leaders that have so much potential, but the numbers don't always work. Right? And I think hopefully that's beginning to change with the interest in the industry, that folks recognize that there can be a lot more value produced. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I keep coming back to like with the recommendation of influencer marketing, like they should be thinking about raising up themselves people like you and I who can be the voice boxes for in a value way, you know, for their specific or representing connected to their specific brands. Right. And I, I continue to believe that like that is a big marketing opportunity for, you know, like I think like AYTM is a great example. You know, they're big enough where they could afford an extra headcount and, yeah. and kill something like that. Well, um, this is critical day with Ray Pointer for a while. Yes, right? I know. I exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Ray Pointer is a perfect example. Like if, if, if I was, a, if I was running a, sh a ship right now, which I'm not having market research, I am the ship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got Chuyi and Matt as my team, but you know what I mean? Like a, like a, you know, I'd be thinking like Ray Pointer from you would be an easy dollar to spend. Yeah. You yeah. can't post anything bad. <laughs> Everything gets me bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree. I mean, and that's part of the, the advisory roles that I take. There's a little bit of that there. Sure. Yeah. You know, trying to help folks, but. How will the market research space be? Like fast forward, private equity comes in, five years passes, you know, you have a bunch of transactions in the next probably 12 months probably some roll-ups, probably some move into brands. So that's going to create some additional white space inside of the market research world. What is your point of view, uh, your crystal ball saying we're going to look like in 2024, 25? Yeah, I keep waiting for one of the big strategy consultancies to buy somebody in the space. They're making mm -hmm. plays, right? They have offerings for sure, but an acquisition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I could see... Talking about like a Bain or a McKinsey or... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Accenture. Yeah. You know, they're making data plays. They're making marketing plays, uh, but I haven't seen them do a research play other than Periscope. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think De Deloitte has one as well, but I keep waiting to see that. Right. And it wouldn't surprise me if let's say, you know, an LRW, uh, mm -hmm. there probably would be a candidate for that. They're reaching the end of their life cycle from their mm -hmm. private equity. Right. They grew big. So they, you know, they could probably exit at, you know, six, 700 million at this point. Yeah. Um, big. And that's Great. a pretty good, Bite for a, a company like for one of the big consultancies. It's not it's not out of the realm. They can write the check, you know, totally. get a lot of value out of it. So that would be one thing that I keep looking for, or more plays from the uh, from the tech companies uh, as well. Uh, Salesforce, you know, they invested in SurveyMonkey when they went public. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they sure did. Uh, I keep waiting for them to buy somebody outright. Again, it wouldn't surprise me if Salesforce made a play for Dynata. Yeah, if Greg Archibald, my partner in Gen 2, was here, he'd say, no, 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 it's going to be a Bain. And maybe, but I still think it would make a lot of sense for it to be a Salesforce. So those two things, right? I think that we're going to look 
that, that dichotomy between service and technology will continue, but the dominant players will be different than they are today, right? We'll look at, you know, the great big consultancies, great big tech companies will, will look a whole lot more like the drivers versus you know, today kind of the freestanding, the Nielsen Cantor. What do you think, what do you think from a technology point of view, like, you know, 5G's out. <clears throat> I don't know if you've used it. I've used it. It's amazing. You know, I've been in different markets. I don't live in one where it's 5G, but uh, it's crazy fast. That enables IVR, or sorry, not IVR, VR, right? In an yeah. augmented reality right. research. Do you, do you think like those types of technologies are going to play a role in the next like in a material world, not just like a disruptive, not just like a, oh, that's cute and neat, yeah. right? Yeah. I think we're still looking for the use cases. The, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a big tech geek. I love VR. I think it's exciting. It hasn't hit. Uh, we were talking before here, you know, virtual qual. You know, it's been around for 15 years, right? you know, but it still has not hit big, right? right? It's, it's getting there, but it's not big. So it's taken 15 years for that uh, technology to just to become, uh, you know, a, a quasi disruptive force. So I don't know where we are with, uh, but, but yeah, mobile only took five. So if VR or AR can hit the same adoption curve that mobile did, it will become incredibly disruptive force in the next few years. We haven't seen the killer use for consumers yet, right? When there is a, a full VR immersive TV that you can buy for less than a thousand bucks, you know, and all the content is streamed in VR, maybe, right? That may be the killer app that then knocks everything down. But we haven't seen that yet. Right. So, uh, so I think we're still, still a few years out. But 5G is important, right? The bandwidth is the limiter on that, just as mobile coverage was the limiter initially for mobile. So we'll see. I, I don't know what the, the next killer app tech is. I think it's continued again to be around for now around efficiency, AI and, and automation, right? It's, it's just, just make things faster and cheaper until there's something that changes the paradigm of how humans engage. with. Really, I mean, there's the, the biggest paradigm shift that we've seen in our careers, right, is from pen and paper slash call centers to online. Yep. And, you know, mobile, I would argue, is really just kind of a variant or a augment of that, of that transact, transition. But it changed the form factor. The form factor was a significant shift in mobile. So... Yes, totally right. Yeah, I completely yep. agree with that. I completely agree with that. The interesting part about that disruption was that it was cost neutral largely for the, or even additive for the buyer. So it's cheaper. So they're already going to spend, let's say $100,000 on a survey. And now it's just a question of, do I want to spend it here or do I want to spend it online? And right. So it was a really easy, there wasn't any like budget argument. It was just a methodological argument. And I think what I'm seeing in the, in the space, when you're talking about, you know, AI empowered tools or, you know, uh, quality scale and all this kind of stuff, right. It's, we don't exactly have that direct comparable to like the comparable is I'm okay. I'm going to do a focus group or I'm going to do 10 focus groups, right. Or I'm going to go do, we'll pick on remesh, remesh sessions. You know what I'm saying? So, and then, and then it becomes like, it doesn't feel like it's an apple to apple right. scenario. Yeah. I mean, I can envision a future where we have for ideation, uh -huh. right? And new product development. You know, that is a virtual experience, even connected to a 3d printer, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, rapid iterative prototyping of things. You I know? love that. Yeah. And I think that's super cool. That gets me, you know, my, my geek button all, Ooh, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's being done. There are companies doing that, right? right? And there are brands that are experimenting with that. It's just kind of reaching critical mass across the board. The biggest issue, though, is I think data privacy. Mm -hmm. That will be 
something that we've had to pay attention to because of GDPR. But when the news hit yesterday, that no surprise, you know, the Department of Justice is going to do a big uh, antitrust investigation of the big tech companies. Data privacy is not the tip of the spear on that, but it will be an output of that. Absolutely right. And you think about, so, so you know, Qual has been under a lot, of, I don't know why I'm picking on Qual right now with you, but like focus groups, there's a lot of them. I don't know how many different facilities, uh, thousands, maybe 1,500, 2,000. And, and so in that- 20% of the industry. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a big piece, but yet they've been under. Do you think that focus groups are going to continue to contract as a as a segment or spend, or do you think there's you think there's an opportunity for growth there? So we mentioned private equity, and two years ago we had a, an investor come and say, you know, what's your thesis, and we'll back it. Right? Wow. Yeah, well, it ended up all falling apart, but the uh, um, <laughs> but, but the thesis was that qual was stable. Mm-hmm. and it was going to remain stable, and mm-hmm. I still believe that. So there's no evidence yet that virtual has taken away from qual. I think it's expanded the pie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that it's, it's – it's, it's, there's been some cannibalization, mm-hmm. right? The, uh, of course, there's, there's been some. But most of the emphasis on online qual has now been about new use cases, like remesh, for example. Right, yeah. Right? So, or invoke, right? Those right. are not – Invoke's a great example. Yeah, and they've been around forever. So there's no evidence that facilities are – the traditional paradigm of a face-to-face qualitative session is going away. And I think facilities have to struggle to find new ways to repurpose their facilities. Right? I think anytime mm-hmm. you own a facility, a, a, any, any infrastructure, you've got to find ways to make that profitable. Same thing the phone centers had to do, right? But I don't think it's going to go away. I think there's just – we're going to see more and more use cases expand, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen – now, sensory. We're nowhere near sensory being able to be done online yet. Right. The tech, there is tech in its infancy to smell and uh, maybe taste. I haven't seen that. But it, it <laughs> that's that kind of terrifying. Well, you know, 3D print. You could, yeah, so. there you go. Oh, I know we're at, we're at top of the hour. Okay, listen, we're going to cut this off right now. I have one last question for you. What is your personal motto? My personal motto? Uh, well, being a Star Wars geek, never tell me the odds. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, never tell me the odds. That's great. That's a good one to end on. That was perfect. My guest today has been Leonard Murphy, author of Green Book Research Industry Trends. That's the Grit Report. Partner in G2 Advisors, Director at Veraglyph, Advisory Board Member. I had to take a breath in there. Investor and change agent. Yeah, I actually cut it down quite a bit. Thank you very much, Lenny, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Hey, all of you who are listening, please take the time to screen capture, share this episode. I love the fact that our listenership is growing. We've exceeded well over 50,000 of you. So thanks. Keep it going. Have a great rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.